Leads, leads, leads. What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called Now, and an activity called Work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 loiners over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day, and hear how they feel about it. I need people to do this, people like you, and most of all I need people who are in Leeds, or are from Leeds, to be my guests. I also need people like you as listeners, and critically I need people like you as financial backers. Please support this show and its mission with a £1 monthly donation via either Patreon or Ko-fi, or you could donate any one-off amount that you choose to the show via, again, Ko-fi or through LibraPay. Please help me with this mission any way that you can. Thank you. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh dear, all that time back. Um, I'm not really sure I had any particular ideas um, about what I wanted to be, to be quite honest with you. Um, at that stage, I quite liked the football. Perhaps I'd have liked to have been a footballer, but if I was good enough. Um, but I had quite a strict father that uh, was ex-forces. Mm. And he very, very much instilled into me that when I left school, I was to have a a skill. Mm. And I had to go into a job that provided me with a skill. Mm. And in the end, that skill started out to be, um, I went into being apprentice butcher. Mm. Um, not particularly because... I wanted to do it, but my father thought it would be a good job going forward. Mm. Um, and I thought, why not? I'll give it a try. Mm. So how long did you last at that? Not long, <laughs> if I wanted. <laughs> I probably did. That was when I left school at 15. Mm. Um, I probably did a little over a year as a butcher, um, mm. as an improver, as the called the apprenticeship at that stage. And I quite enjoyed the time that I was there. I started at um, a place called Queen's Asda mm. at uh, Thornhill Lease, which has actually now become the great Asda supermarket chain. Nice. And it actually was a supermarket chain in its own right called Queen's and then Associated Dairies mm. bought a part of it and then very quickly took over. Mm. Um, and it became Asda at that stage. So I did a little bit there and then moved on to a little bit at the, the co-op in Batley mm-hmm. and did a little bit there. Um, and things sort of petered out and starts to go a little bit awry at that stage, I think. Mm. If I'm being absolutely honest with you, me dad and I weren't getting on a lot. And I got into a little bit of trouble with the wrong sort of people. Mm. Um, not too serious at that stage, mm. um, but nevertheless, um, I did get in trouble and I ended up in court and got my wrist slapped. Yeah. As you do for the... Was, was it a lucky escape sort of thing or was it just, was it a wake up call? Of the I guess looking back, it probably was a lovely escape. Mm. Um, they put me on, I won't say on remand because it wasn't, um, 
they put me into a children's home for a while so they could do some assessments on me. Mm. Um, and that was a, a place called Greenhorn, which was in gold. Mm. Um, and they asked me, before I went back to say the like, social services, they asked me, did I want to go back home? Mm. I was probably, I don't know, 16, just come 16 at this stage. Mm. Um, and I made the decision that I didn't want to go back home because if I went back home, I felt the relationship I had with my father would have probably let me into even more trouble. Mm. Um, so I, I didn't go home. Um, but yeah, I think it was a wake up call. Um, I'd have gone home, I, I, I'm going to be honest and say I probably would have got back into, into more trouble. Mm. Um, and it, you know, it probably saved me from that. So I stayed in goal, um, met my first wife, or well, my only wife at this stage. We set up, I went to live with her, her home, uh, they welcomed me in mm. and we had I had a few, a job in a supermarket to start with, and mm. um, where she worked, which is where I've met her. Um, and at that stage, I was then coming up 17 and a job on the railway came up mm. uh, and I, well, I was actually about 17 and a half and I applied for a signalman's job. And at that point it was, I was too young. You had to be 18 to be a signalman, mm. but they offered me a job in the gold signal box is what was called in a cabin lab, mm. which you did all the menial work and you kept, uh, they had a register in there of every train movement that was made in that ship. Mm. And my job was to log all those train movements, mm. uh, make the tea, clean the fire out, do anything that the signalman required of me at that stage. Mm. And I enjoyed it. And that as the same as pretty much the start of my railway career. You're listening to Series 3, Episode 25, and to my guest, John Stewart. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 22nd of August, 2022. Hello, loves. Welcome to Radio 4 from Hell. Tomorrow, Western Studios Leeds Limited, the company that makes this podcast, it's all me really, has been trading for two years. This podcast should finally hit 1,000 unique listener downloads. At the end of, or during this month and hopefully western studios should by the end of this month have been paid by its first client working hours will be dropping two episodes a week from now on for the rest of this year i finally have too many recordings from this year to get out on a one a week basis now i need to and now can up my publishing output this also means twice as much work for me too so that means I need to find twice as much time and energy to do it. I do currently have the do it. <laughs> I do currently have the time and energy now. But do I have the inclination? No, not at the moment. No. I need to do loads on the podcast and then do loads more and then do loads more social media work and then loads more emailing people and loads more looking around to find loads more people to invite so I can do loads more recordings. <sighs> And with what, for what, for whom? Oh, woe is Treen. I don't even mind doing any of that, really, but doing it regularly without other rewards? Ugh. So please drop me a message, a comment, an email, anything. Fuck engagement. It's just nice to be acknowledged sometimes. Say the show's good or bad. 
say you like it or don't like it, say you like something or don't like something. More of this, less of that. I know the show well enough now to not be too precious about it, so constructive criticism is now completely welcome. Um, as far as I can tell, I think there's like 10 regular listeners in Leeds that I don't know. So whoever the rest of you are, please see if you can con three other people you know or meet into either listening or being on this podcast please subscribe to the patreon even if you only end up doing a couple of months please think about leaving a review somewhere anywhere everywhere please rate this show if you're listening to it on a player that lets you do that on spotify it's just at the top of the page near the show title do it now do it now do it now I have to keep making this project mean something, and when it's done, I think it will. But at the moment, it's still... It's just nothing. Nobody likes it, nobody listens, and I'm wasting my time, he thinks. Don't get me wrong, I'm extremely proud of the 55 episodes I have made. Maybe not proud of me on all of those 55 episodes, but whatever. I'm still 195 episodes behind my naive initial schedule. 90 from year one. 80 from year two and 25 behind where I should be roughly this year. That's also demotivating. But I am making huge improvements against all odds and previous expectations. I have doubled my output in the second year of the show and I have already more than doubled that output this year with two months still left to go of the year. Hopefully next year I will get out a full 100 episodes. If I get really lucky I might even hit my first 100 recordings in total this year. And if I get really, really, really lucky... I'll get 100 recordings out in just this year. So it is growing slow and steady, but I can't feed this conceptual baby all on my own anymore. I really can't feed this thing at a much greater level than I am already doing without outside help. So i got to ask, I have sunk a lot of time and expense into this, but the project is viable. There are Patreons and we have received some large donations. These are facts. I just need to scale all this up. I cannot do this now without your help, though. You're the only person I can ask. So please, I am asking now. Help, however you can. So how do you join Patreon? Go to www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash working hours pod. Go to membership and then pick a championship tier. There's three. The Loiners is just £1 a month. If you join at that tier, then you will be increasing my motivation for working on this project by making me think, oh, look, someone else does like it and finds it interesting, and I'll do more work on it. If I'm the only one that cares, I'll do it when I'm goddamn good and ready. That is, unfortunately, the reality, and motivation is always a problem when you're pretty certain about your imminent climate doom. Patreon takes 5% of your pound. Fair enough. If you join at the Outlander rate, though, which is a fiver, then Patreon only takes 3% of that amount. If you want to give a bit more to the show, join at the Outlander rate. And if you'd like to give even more regular support to the show, then become a champion on Patreon at the £15 Angel Advertiser rate, where you can get an in-show ad read for your business. Hmm, £15 for an advert on a show that has had a maximum of around 100 listens... I don't see the value in that. Really, it's had 100 listens in month one. By year one, it's probably had 250 or more listens. By year 10, a lot, lot more. 
you would literally be buying like one of those adverts you see on terrace houses sometimes from like 100 years ago or whatever. Cheapest best value sponsorship that you'll ever buy. I tell thee. As I said, the show is still growing and it's not even hit its growth spurt yet. Nobody knows about this show yet. We're just arriving at first base here. This show is still in its really early days, but it has already stood the test of some time too. So now is a really great time to jump in and get involved. Why is it £15 for the Angel Advertiser? Well, it was to cover the cost of my Captivate FM podcast hosting. That's why. Because that's the essential expense that I have. The toll the podcast must pay. And it would be great if someone else paid that cost. I do want to edge my way towards breaking even on this thing sometime in the first five years of the project. That'd be good. That'd be nice. If it could pay its own financial costs. At this point, that would be an unbelievably massive win. If you would like to support this show via Kofi, then go to Kofi, that's ko-fi.com forward slash working hours forward slash tears. That's a Tango India Echo Romeo Sierra tears. Uh, again, it's a pound a month and you can also give one off donations of any amount of your choosing or a suggested amount of three pound via Kofi. Again, anything and everything you do really helps. If you take out a membership, then you are subtly encouraging others to do so too. We see, we do, peer pressure. Model your behavior for others to follow. If you've been to the Kofi or Patreon page before but didn't commit, then please commit now. Take that next step down the old sales funnel. Come on, I'm not trying to flog you merch, am I? But seriously, if you want that, let me know. Uh, also, the Patreon and Kofi offers at the moment are not great. Like, I'm not doing much on it. But I don't have reason to. So give me a reason to. John Stewart joined the railway in 1969 and became a union rep in 1975. Starting as a signal box register lad, he moved on to signal man, relief signal man, freight guard and passenger guard. John has also had various positions within Leeds City RMT branch. He is the current branch secretary and took voluntary redundancy from work in 2017. I'm not signing out on this one, so I thank John on the recording. Come back on Friday to hear me talk to a carer and performer. But now, please enjoy this episode of Working Hours with John Stewart. Yeah, so my next question is normally, what is it that you are doing now? But you're basically kind of winding up your career at this point. So, I mean, you're still working. Uh, but yeah, so what is it that you're doing now? Well, officially, um, I took... I took voluntary redundancy from the railway. Mm -hmm. Um, as I say, I started in 69. Um, I took voluntary redundancy in 2017. Mm -hmm. Uh, it wasn't the job and that'd be the job that I'd known for many years, I guess, since privatization really mm -hmm. said I'd done many jobs from starting as a cabin lad to moving on to a signalman. Um, moving on to a relief signalman, going on to freight guards, going on to passenger sites. Mm. And then I moved uh, back to Leeds because the jobs were being, I was displaced essentially. Mm. Um, and there was lots of work at Leeds within the rail system. Well, I was born and bred in Morley. Mm. So it was a perfect opportunity to go back to Leeds. And I went back to Leeds in 70. 
No. In about 86, I think we went back to Leeds. And from then on, I just stayed within the grade of guard um, on the differing systems. Privatization made it into city. But privatization for me killed the railways, to be quite honest with you. It was a family affair. Everybody said it was rubbish and, you know, the sandwiches were shit and they were always late and bad my language. Mm-hmm. But then had it had the investment that the private companies get today, it would have been a totally different system. Mm. Um, so I was coming towards the end of my career as a railwayman. I was getting towards retirement age anyway. And then suddenly some options came along for voluntary redundancy. And I thought, well, if you want to pay me a few bob to leave the job, then I'll be leaving in 12 months anyway, then that would do me fine. Mm. So I took voluntary redundancy in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been retired, officially retired for five years. The job I enjoyed most in all my years on the railway was, was the job of a, a union representative. And I was a union representative from probably about 1975 until the day that I left in 2017. And I took mm-hmm. great, great pleasure in doing that job. I had a reputation of being able to speak mm-hmm. uh, and speak in my mind. And I hated the fact that others couldn't speak and I hated injustice. Mm. Um, so I became a rep and I defended people that I felt needed defended. Mm. Um, and since I've retired, I've kept on, I've been branch secretary from the RMT, uh, Leeds City branch for the last 18 years. Mm. So I've kept that on. Um, and to this day, I'm still doing union work albeit not particularly within the companies, but as a branch secretary, Leeds City branch is the third biggest branch in the, in the country. Mm. I have upwards of 1500 members mm. of all grades throughout the railway. Mm. So that keeps me fairly busy <laughs> and I'm making sure they're kept up to date and they know what's what. Mm. And of course with the, the current industrial action, then I'm really very busy. Mm. Doing a lot of things like I am today, which is, you know, podcasts and interviews with the varied trade union groups and the, the Labour Party group explaining why people are on strike. Mm. Um, and it's just been a way of keeping my mind active, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and I love every minute of it. Mm. So how did you sort of get into the union? I would imagine that it was quite heavily unionised at the time and you sort of encouraged as soon as you were employed. Well, when I was employed, when we started, the the railway was what we call the closed shop, mm. which you had to join the union. There was no ifs and buts at that stage. Um, the minute that you set foot on, on British Rail territory, if you like, then the local rep at that, wherever you were, would come knocking on your door and he would give you a form and say, sign up for this. Mm. So it was a closed shop. Um, we had no option at both stages. They've since outlawed that. Um, and you know, I, I ain't got a problem with them outlawing that if, if you don't like joining a union and it's not what's up for you, then that's fine. Mm. Um, I took a lot out of it. And as I say, um, uh, I got taken under the wing of a couple of old hands, if you like, as we used to call them then, mm. or were union reps. Um, and they were coming towards their time, um, to retire and sort of 
cajoled me into it, if you like, and taught me the ropes. Uh, and I sort of took over, as I say, I, I think the first, first year I became a rep was about 75, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been a rep of some form all the way through locally at Gould. And then to be fair, when I came back to Leeds, having done it at that stage for quite some time, I thought, oh, well, they've got some good reps of their own here at Leeds. So mm. I'll be able to sit back and take a, a back seat for a while and not bother. <laughs> um, but of course, reputations do tend to go before you. Mm. And then it got to the point where people did come and ask me, would I stand for rep? And I said, no, you've got some good reps here. I'm not going to stand against people that are doing a good job. Mm. Um, well, then the split came when they decided to privatize the railways. It started by splitting the railways into sectors to start mm. Um, and the main sector was intercity, mm. um, which was the, the down, the line down to London and up to Edinburgh and places like that was, um, was the East Coast route. We had an option of going on East Coast or cross country. Cross country would have gone down. Sheffield, Derby, down that way through to Birmingham and places like that. Mm. And I chose to stay on the East Coast. Mm. And of course, the two reps that were there at that stage, they chose to go cross country. Mm. So that then did leave vacancies for reps mm. in my department and they convinced me to stand again. So um, that's when I, I started again and I worked my way through there too. Um, well, I became... I don't say the top dog, but the highest rep, if you like, where I was chair of all the local groups and chair of the regional council and chair of the joint committee. And mm-hmm. the joint committee was the top negotiating group that negotiated terms and conditions and wages and things that were the really serious part of it, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I became chairman of that group mm-hmm. and sat in that seat for it. I don't know, 20 odd years. So I took a lot of, a lot of satisfaction out in in what I did. And I think the time that we were there or I was there and the group of people that were also longstanding reps, um, we made an awful lot of difference and we improved people's terms and conditions over the years. Mm. So yes, I took a lot out of that. And when you've been doing it that long, it's a bit of a wrench to just leave it alone, you know? Mm. Mm. So when I retired. I thought, well, it'll keep my mind active and I'll, and I'll keep doing it. Yeah. Mm. yeah, keep your hand in. Um, well, and as well, there's all the knowledge and experience that sort of stays within the union then as well. There is. Uh, and that, to be absolutely honest with you, is it's essential that the people like myself that have done all the years, that have seen it all before, that have been in this situation, just scenarios, mm. hand that experience over to the younger reps that's coming through. Mm. And we did have, I'll be quite honest with you, we did have a, a, a bit of a session in the early days of privatization where that was very difficult mm. because privatization was a very different type of railway. And we were getting uh, a very different type of, of staff joining the railway at that time. And the younger element, to be quite honest with you, knew very little or if anything about trade unionism. Mm. And, you know, you, you really had to work hard to get those people involved. 
Mm. Um, I used to sell it as an insurance policy. Mm. I used to say to him, look, you know, I hope you'll never need me as a representative, but if you do, I'm here. Mm. Um, and if you're not a member, you won't get the benefit of that knowledge and that experience, mm. um, because it's simply for members only, mm. but that's your choice. I never, I never said you have to join. I used to say it's your choice always, and I'll respect whatever choice that you, you'll make, but I highly recommend that you join. And but it was an uphill battle with some of the newer staff, the younger staff. It was something that they'd never, ever experienced. And, you know, it, it took a while for a lot of people to understand all the benefits that they did have, you know, rest days and paid Sundays and things like that, mm. uh, and shorter working weeks. They, they were all achieved by people like me and others sitting around the table and negotiating with management. Didn't, the management didn't come and say to you, hey, yeah, You've done a mm. good job this week, so we'll give you a bit of a perk. That didn't work like that. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it was hard at one stage, but towards the end, it, it was getting a lot better than we were bringing some youngsters, some good, intelligent, smart kids you know, mm. that were ready to step into my shoes when I left. And, and I was confident that those people would do a good job. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of like people have found them again. <laughs> I think they have, um, and I think privatization, as it went on, got worse mm. in the fact that the companies were all split up and they were franchised. Mm. And it, of course, you know, the companies that, that bought these franchises up were in it because they had shareholders mm. and they had benefits to pay and uh, premiums to pay to shareholders. Mm. Um, and the only way they could make that make then Meckhead was made and still pay uh, the shareholders at the end of the year was they had to make cost cuts elsewhere. Mm. Um, and of course, the biggest cost of an outlay a company have got is the wage bill. So they started to cut wages or started to cut jobs mm. uh, out and, and staff were working a lot harder mm. um, for not much better pay. And I think people started to wake up to the fact that they, they needed somebody to fight for him. And that was the only answer. It was as simple as that. Mm. And it's now coming back even more yeah. in today's day and age. Um, that people are understanding that unions are not the big ogres that the right wing press would have you believe. Mm. You know, all the unions want is a fair day's pay for a day, fair day's work. Mm. Um, but we're back in the, the processes now of we haven't got companies to negotiate with the, mm. the privatized companies that have made a mess of it and they've had the franchises taken off from them mm. um, are being paid to run the services now by the government and so the government are pulling the strings mm. um, and the thing that we have seen very recently is even though the, the Tory government put in place a huge threshold that we had to meet before we could call a strike. Mm. Um, and the Labour government, although they got in on the pro, uh, the platform that those would be, all those would be rescinded, they never did rescind any mm. mm. Um And there was a lot of, there was a lot of apathy when it came to balloting for things, for mm. pay rises, things like that. People just couldn't be bothered and they didn't put it in. Uh, and they didn't bother balloting and voting. Mm. But I can tell you now, 
that's all changing. Uh, we, you know, the thresholds that we were put in place, that were put in place on us, was that you had to have at least 50% of those people, or 50% plus one of mm. those people that were entitled to vote, had to vote, and of those that did vote, 40% had to vote yes before you could get a, uh, a legal strike action of any sort. Mm. And not just us, but most of the unions these days, they're absolutely smashing that threshold. Mm. We've got a current industrial action going on with 40,000 members. Mm. Um, and when we balloted those 40,000 members, the turnout was 89%. Mm. Um, and it was up in the high 70s of those that voted yes for industrial action. Mm. So people are looking at it now and understanding that, you know, you need to fight for yourself because nobody else is going to fight for you. Mm. Uh, the, the recent incidents with P&O where they just decided they would stack 800 members. Mm. Um, I saw things on down there and they had busloads of security people waiting. Um, some of them in balaclavas, some of them with handcuffs strapped to the belt, waiting to take the people off that boat mm. uh, if they refused to, to come off. Uh, and a lot did. But several hours, 10, 12 hours. Um, and I think that woke people up to the fact that you've got to protect yourself because nobody else is going to protect you. Mm. Mm. And, you know, you can't rely on, like, even the laws to protect you because they're not necessarily going to be there all the time and they're, you know, because... Well, the, the laws the laws are as good as the people that make them, to be mm. quite honest. And enforce them. Yeah. Um, you know, and I've always been a great believer. We didn't get where we were today without breaking a few laws. Mm. But but what you get what you're getting now more and more is, and we're seeing it again now with this industrial action. Um, this government in particular, uh, they just if you don't like what you're doing and you've achieved everything that they've asked you to achieve, and they're still winning, then they'll they'll change the law. They'll bring in a new law, as Grand Shaps and Company are already saying they're going to do. Mm. Um, which, you know, he's ne neither in nor they, he'd be better off spending his time letting, it, it's not a coincidence that the people that are not under the wing of the government, all the companies that are not under this great British railways, mm. all those people have negotiated with their own company management, mm. um, and 99% of them have come to an agreed settlement, mm. you know, with no strikes, no nothing. Mm. Uh, and. You know, I talk to the top brass. I know Mick Lynch mm. personally. I know all the people that's doing negotiations. Mm. I've been brought up with them. And they will tell you quite clearly that a lot of the companies now are disgusted at the way Shaps is, hand is handling all this. And they mm. would much rather just go back to sitting around the table and coming to an agreed negotiation. Mm. Neither side will ever get what, everything that they want. Mm. You know, one will start up here, one will start down here, and you'll meet somewhere in the middle. Mm. But we've always achieved that. Mm. And I think people have had enough. I think the whole militant sort of Labour thing, uh, you know, small L Labour and being more militant, that that's kind of a media image that's been sold. And it like, you know, in the sort of when unions haven't been around as much, and now it doesn't really work because, you know, like unions are still around and they've obviously been, 
you know, in plenty of places have got good relationships with some of the employers. Obviously, there's always like, you know, a level of combat, but there are negotiations that can take place. And in a lot of places, you know, a lot of employers do appreciate the union and what they're doing and what they bring back. So it's not always, it's not always antagonistic, like. And it shouldn't be, quite honest with you. I learned a lesson very early in privatization. As a, as a younger rep under British Rail, the antagonizing that you talk about and the antagonistic meetings that you talk about mm. were there. And there was no doubt about that. Mm. Um, and as a young man at 21, 22, mm. to be able to sit down at the table with the hierarchy and the management mm. uh, and bang my fist on the table, which we did quite regularly, because that was the sort of meetings that you would have in those days, mm. and bang my fist on the table and say to the, to the management there, look, this is what we want. You come up with something that will settle this, or my guys are out. It's as simple as that. And those in those days, you could do that. And at 21, 22 year old, to have that sort of power at your fingertips, mm. it, it was, it could be all consuming if you weren't sensible with it. Mm. And of course, you get a name as you go on mm. if, if, you, if you act like that. And then I very quickly understood that when privatization came along, mm. that was no longer going to work. Mm. You could not go in and start banging your fists and telling them what was going to happen. You had to take a far more subtle approach. And I, I prided myself on having much to the disgust, I would say, of a lot of people, mm. of having a very good working relationship with most of the management team that, that I had to negotiate with. Mm. Um, and that came out of a more sensible toned approach mm. um, of negotiating and not banging your fists on the table and not telling them what you were going to do. That mm. mean, it mean to say that you, you, know, you, you didn't have to let them know that you were serious about what you were doing. And, mm. and yes, at the end of all this, if we can't come to a settlement, then there, there is a very strong likelihood that, that strike action or overtime bounds or whatever may well take place. Mm. But it was a very, very different approach when privatization came in. And I very, had, very quickly had to adapt to that as a lot of my reps had to do. And some fell by the wayside because they couldn't adapt to that. Mm. As unfortunately did some of the managers as well. Mm because they were also ensconced in the shield as I say, I'm your manager mm. type attitude, and that doesn't work well either. Mm. So I quite prided myself on the fact that I was quite well respected within the industry and certainly within the companies that I worked for, mm. because yes, they knew full well that if I got annoyed, then I wasn't to be messed with, mm. but equally, if we'd reached an impasse, I was able to go away and try and talk some sense into the guys that were not playing the ball, if you like, you know what I mean? And mm. I think in the end, if I'm honest, that was a far better way of doing it. Mm. And I quite enjoyed it much more than knowing that, you know, if I said we're out, we're out because mm. nobody wins in those situations. Mm. Nobody wins by going on strike, you know? Yeah. Cause obviously you don't get paid 
No, the workers lose that money. <laughs> and you will, it doesn't matter what deal that you come up with at the end of it. You never recoup what you've lost. Mm. So, you know, it, it, it obviously is an absolute. And I have been involved in that many strikes, I'll be quite honest with you, over my years. You know mm. what I mean? So people do have to understand that it is a very last resort if we get to where we are currently. Because mm. even like, you know, so sort of, Bob Crow had his own reputation within the media of being, you know, a sort of more militant union leader. But even then, most of the actions that I can recall were sort of locally based in London. It was kind of like, if we do the action in London, that's enough most of the time. So, I mean, this, like, I can't, I can't think of another large railway strike of this size. Well, there hasn't been one, I'll be quite honest with you. Mm. Um, Bob Crow was a very great friend of mine. Me and Bob used to get on quite well. Um, he was, for me, he was the greatest trade union leader we've ever had mm. within the RMT. Mm. Yes, he had this image of, of being a bit of a wild man mm. uh, and, and bringing people out on strike. He didn't bring many people out on strike, didn't Bob? Didn't Bob? Mm. Because Bob knew that if you could talk your way out of it, and still get a reasonable settlement, then that was far, far better. Mm. But they also knew Bob would not mince his words. Mm. You know, if he thought you were wrong, he was going to tell you that we're wrong. He was mm. wrong. And he, they also knew that Bob says, we will be out on strike. We will be out on strike. Mm. End of story. Mm. But he didn't want that anymore. If, if people knew Bob privately, mm. Bob was a very, very private man. Mm. Uh, and he was a very quiet man mm. in his own skin. If you know what I mean, mm. he used to come along and, and, and do long service award presentations for us, mm. um, for the members. He loved his members. He absolutely loved his members and he would do all for his members and he would travel the country to, to hand out long service award medals. Cause he knew that it meant a lot to people for him to hand them that long service award and to speak to us. Mm. And he would do that. Um, and he would stay and have a pipe. Mm. afterwards and talk to people. Mm. But you could guarantee this, by midnight, Bob was gone. Mm. And he wouldn't come round and say goodbye to everybody. Mm. He would just quietly leave and go back to his hotel mm. uh, and go about his business then, and you wouldn't see him again. Because um, that's what he was like. He, he had his limitations, he came and did his bit, mm. and then he went. Mm. Um, and a lot of people adored the guy for that. Mm. And he was... He was a very dry, very dry comedian. Mm. And he had lots of retorts for lots of people. Mm. Um, and he made some people look, look very small when they tried to make him out as the working class hero, if you like that, no brains. Well, mm. Bob had lots of brains. Mm. He didn't get up to where he was without having brains. Mm. He was a very astute man mm. uh, and a great loss to us. And far too soon he was taken. Mm. A lot of respect for Bob. He used to call me the Yorkshire. B-A-S-T-A-R-D. He used to call me that. Because he was a Millwall supporter. And <laughs> up, here, up here at Leeds. <laughs> and he used to come up and watch him. And invariably there was a rook, you know, with the Millwall fans in the Leeds fans. We had a great relationship, really did. And, and uh, an only some truer man I've never met in my life. Mm. What's it like working on the railways? I mean, obviously it's changed, but were you, I mean, is it one of those sort of rolling hours shift work? Do you, 
did you have regularity could you plan things like was did you have uh, loads of hours or is it good work-life balance like what was it like well as a rep part of my job was to make sure that that you did have a reasonable work-life balance mm. that, that the members had mm. we used to put together the, the rosters mm. and the links i loved it i'll be quite honest yeah you had to like shift work mm. because it was a it was a three shift pack it was early afternoons and nights mm. um depending on which particular job you did um some did more nice there were no there's there weren't many they didn't run in this area they didn't run many through the night services mm. if you like mm. um but yeah you had to be prepared to work nights uh, and if you got caught out there in disruption and um, you didn't know what time you were getting home mm. um so yeah um some would say it was very hierarchical if you like because it was everything within the railway was run by what we called seniority mm. so the younger men coming in would look at the the senior men with all the years servicing and say, they get all the easy jobs. Mm. They get all the jobs that would be nice for us to have, and we get all the rubbish around, you know. Um, and there was, and to be honest, we just still is. Mm. Um, that sort of hierarchy within there, because senior men have gone through everything that those junior men, as we call them now, mm. have gone through. So to get up that ladder, uh, mm. I'll never forget when I came, when I first came back to, uh, to Leeds from gold, um, I went to, we had six links, what we call links, um, which was, they'd be welcome, A, B, C, D, D and F. Mm. And the different jobs were in, in the different links. So the, 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 the run around jobs that were all running around Leeds. But the, you know, the stopping jobs to all the stations, they'll be in the lower links. Mm -hmm. um, and up in the top two links were the intercity work that were down to London and back or down to Birmingham and back and things like that. Mm. But I moved, when I came back from Gull, having been displaced, I went back to Leeds. And because of my seniority, mm. I should have gone straight into the top link. Mm. But you can't displace somebody like that. You mm. wait until a vacancy becomes available mm. and then you move into it. And I was lucky, I guess, because I did the lower link jobs, if you like, for about 12 months mm -hmm. before a vacancy came up in, uh, in the, the top two links. And I moved up to that. I just moved into that link uh, and I was around in the mess room area at one point when this, this young guy came around and said, oh, here he is. This is, this is our ex goal man that's coming here and took all our, all our good jobs. So I said, oh, okay, what, what do you mean by that? Well, he said, you come here and you're, you're stating to top link. And I said, well, I'm in top link because I've got a lot of years servicing. I think at this stage, I probably had about 18 years servicing. Mm. Um, and I said, you're talking about us stealing all your work. I said, what link are you in? He says, I'm in link C. We said, I'm waiting to go up into yours. I said, well, how long have you been on the railway? He said, I've been on the railway for eight years. <laughs> I said, eight years. I said, I, I've got a dog at home that's got more service than that. <laughs> I said, if you want to go upwards, then you have to do what I've had to do, which is move around the country. Mm. 
I said, I didn't want the lead goal to come here. I had no option. But this is where the work was. And I've had to do that in order to get the year's service that I've got in. So I said, I suggest you go away and have a think about that before you start talking about something that you don't really know about. <laughs> but that's how it was. <laughs> you know, I didn't particularly ask to go straight into the top league. That's the way that the, the hierarchy ran. Mm. If I had lots of service, I was entitled to be in the top link and, mm. and that's what we did. And yes, it upset a few of my colleagues, but equally they, a lot of them were told me jig with it because mm. they know that they were working, they were up there as well. Mm. Um, so yeah, the work-life balance, it could be terrible at times. You know, mm. if you were in one of the lower links and you got what they call all the rubbish job, mm. uh, and you know, yes. It, it was hard. If you were on stopper that, you know, that was going out to Manchester and you had 17 stations to stop at and 17 stations to stop at coming back mm. and you did that twice, then that's hard work. Mm. Whichever way you want to look at it, that's hard work. And of course, you don't come across some doddlums in the job that mm. make your job harder. Um, so, yeah, but it was our jobs as reps to try and balance all those links out. So nobody had all the horrendous work and nobody had all the easy work. And it wasn't easy. But I think we did overall quite a good job of it. We didn't get too many complaints about it. Um, well, I loved it. I loved it. They, the differentiated patterns worked for me. Um, and of course, if you didn't like that particular shift you were on, you could always find a colleague. If you were on late and you didn't like late, you could always look around and find a colleague that was on earlys that didn't like earlys. Mm. So they would, you would then go in to see the roster clerk and say, me and Ingrid are going to swap shifts next week and do it that way. And mm. there was lots of leeway about how you could do that. Well, I loved the job. You know, I, I met so many different people in that job mm. um, that you, you couldn't go out on two days and know what was going to happen to you. Mm. Um, and I loved that part of it. I really did. And I met some lovely, wonderful people out there. And yes, I met some real dickheads as well. Mm. Um, but that was I'm part of the job. You're in your customer service industry and you're yeah. going to get it. But I had some good fun times as well. Mm. Um, yeah. So were you kind of ending up all over the place? I mean, did they, was it generally ran so that you would always be coming back home or did you find yourself sort of, oh, I'm going to have to spend a weekend here or? No, no, they, um, the lodging turns, as we call them, uh, were very few of our between. Mm. Uh, as, as health and safety and things came in, mm. then the rules were getting to the point where they didn't want you working tremendous amount of hours. You know, if you go back to the steam days, yes, you couldn't guarantee to be up. And yes, some jobs were just too far and they would put you up and you would mm. launch. And there were some. In fact, I, I, it's only recently that the last lodging jobs has finished in the last probably 10 or 15 years. Mm. Um, but no, the link, the jobs that you had, the, the health and safety rules said, because we would train guards, which was, um, a safety critical role, mm. then they didn't want to put it under lots and lots of, of pressure. Um, and so your ship patterns were. The maximum that you could ever work on, on one shift was 12 hours. Mm. Um, and then you also had to have 12 hours off between shifts. Mm. 
Um, that wasn't always the case. Sometimes you had nine-hour turnarounds. When I was a signalman, uh, if I finished a night shift, I'd finish a night shift at six o'clock. I'd go home, but I'd be back again at two o'clock because you went from nights to afternoons. So then I would be back in, in eight hours to do a week of afternoons. But we tried to weed all that out of it. Uh, and there are some very strict health and safety rules now that say, no, you, you can't. Can be asked to go out and lodge, and, and we several of us were. Mm. Um, but you booked off, you got paid through it, you booked off, and then you booked on again the following morning, having had the, the requisite amount of rest. Mm. However, because of the systems as they are, um, when things went wrong and disruption was there, then you know you couldn't guarantee to come back. Mm. Um, you'd get down there, particularly now in the days of electrification, if those overhead cables come down, as they've been doing quite a lot just recently, and you were the wrong side of it, mm. then you couldn't get back. It was as simple as that because there was no power to get you back. Mm. When the old days were the HSTs, then that didn't so much matter. The diesel trains, then yes, you could. But if it was a track defect, if it was a derailment, if it was something like that, mm. you didn't know when you'd be coming home. When I was a freight guard, and I'd sit in a brake van, we were making freight. Freight trains were always the the, the secondary concern on the railway. Um, if there was a passenger train coming, you were shunted into a siding or a slow road till that passenger train went. Mm. And if there was a lot of passenger trains, you could sit two and three hours in, in there until everything had gone before they let you move. Mm. And of course, that messes your hours up. Mm. So, yeah, there was a certain amount of sometimes... You say, I should be home at so-and-so, but don't expect it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. But you know, overall, your booked turns and your shift patterns were made so that everybody could have, or most people could have, mm. a good work-life balance. But it, it didn't always work out that way. Mm. So you mentioned electrification. One of the things that I'm thinking of as well is, you know, you, you sort of mentioned when you were starting out, is in signals that you were taking notes of all the trains. Uh, so obviously you're doing all that logging by hand, I would imagine at that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. So seeing the kind of computerization come in, uh, like when did you kind of notice that or become aware of it or when did that kind of change for you? Well, it, it's not all that. It, it's not something that's really, really new. Mm. Um, to be quite honest with you, when I, uh, the gold signal box, and, and that was, as I say, back in the, I started in, in gold signal box in 69. Mm. I was signaling around there through the seventies and gold signal box was transferred into what they called the power box, mm. which was run by electronics. Mm. You know, it was electronics. There was no pulling the levers as I used mm. to do when I was a signal mm. uh, in the early days, they pulled a switch. Everything was electrified. It was all track circuits, um, so you could tell where the train was at any time. Um, so that's not new. That was back in the, they were doing that back in the in the seventies. Mm. The new signalling systems, uh, the new uh, trap layouts and things like that, electrified signals rather than semaphore signals. That's what speeded up the railway. And yes, once change came, it came very quickly. Mm. Technology took over a lot of it. Trains got better, steam trains, obviously. 
run their course. You then went on to diesel trains and then electric trains. Mm. Um, electrification of the East Coast Main Line took a long time to do, but yes, it, it increased. I say this tongue in cheek because a lot of passengers that are traveling at the moment would disagree. Mm. Uh, it increased the reliability of things. Um, it increased the speeds that you could uh, that you could reach. Not particularly the top speeds mm. because it's 125 mile an hour railway that we have. That's the top speed we'll get in this one trip. Mm. Um, but time was saved by acceleration and braking speeds. Mm. Acceleration speeds on the electrics are phenomenal. Mm. Um, the braking systems have got far better. Mm. Um, so if you can go, if you can speed it up and stop it quicker, mm. you can only have a certain amount of trains on a certain amount of track at any one time. Mm. But if they're all running a little bit faster, then you can save train. I could save minutes on your timetable like that, and potentially uh, get it round the route again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, yeah, technology came in and it made some huge strides, mm. um, particularly within the train as well. You know, I mean, customer. Satisfaction within the, the newer trains, except the seats on the newer zoomers, they don't like them, but they're not very good. But yeah, electric trains coming on with um, electrified doors and things like that. I mean, as a guard on a, on a diesel HST train, uh, you were spending a lot of time walking up and down and closing doors after passengers or yeah. closing doors that a passenger hadn't closed correctly. Yeah. Once you got that sorted out and you got central door locking on them, um, and things like that, then yeah, it all speeds things up and makes the journey uh, quicker uh, and more reliable. Mm. But then the other side of that coin, of course, is electronics could go wrong. Mm. Circuit breakers could, you know, do silly things. Mm. Uh, and then you get a breakdown in the train such as that, then you've got to find what the fault is and how to correct it. Mm. So it swings around about, yeah, the modern railway, and it's going to get far better than that now. They're bringing in uh, computer-run signaling on the East Coast Main Line, and they've already trialled it some, and then they'll be bringing it in in the next couple of years, I suspect, where I won't say the driver will be redundant, but certainly it'll be a computer that's telling you what he's doing and what he shouldn't be doing. You know? mm. And they pretty much got that on the on the electric trains now. It, it's all very much computer-led. Um, but, yeah, technology... We have to adopt to technology, not mm. just in trains, but in ticket machines and, and you know, everything, the, the old system. Mm. Um, did it make it any better? I guess overall it did, but equally we talk about electrification and, and those wires, they haven't stood the test of time. We've got to be honest because they, they fail more regularly and be, and they seem to be brought down as we call it, um, more regularly. Um, we've had some horrendous days of disruption just recently because if a train that's, that's doing 125 mile an hour across where the wire's just running on the pantograph, that's all it is. It's just running on the top of the pantograph and it's sending the electric through to the train. If something goes wrong and there's a break in that, the train doesn't stop in 100 yards. Mm. So the fact is that those wires will get wrapped around that pantograph if it's still there. Um, and you bring in, you might bring two or three miles of old red wires now. And that takes some replacing. You don't do that in an hour, you know what I mean? So when it goes wrong, it's horrendous. Mm. Unlike the iron is when 
you know, all you got, the, the worries that you had then was the wrong type of snow and the wrong type of leaves and things yeah. like that, which everybody made a lot of fun of, but were very, very legitimate problems. Mm. Um, and people just didn't realize it. I took part in a, a TV documentary called The Yorkshire Pullman some years back. Mm. Um, they was with us. A um, couple of guys were with us for 16 weeks on the Yorkshire Pullman, which was the train at that stage. Um, it was the, it was the, the train, the first train that did Leeds to London soaked two hours. Mm. Um, and they came along and did a, a documentary on which I, I played quite a large part in it. Let's put it that way. Basically because we were doing pay negotiations as well at that stage. Right. Throughout that. And they got interested in the union side of it as well. Yeah. But also we had some very bad weather through that. And we did get the wrong type of snow. And the wrong type of snow basically just meant is the very fine snow that came down. Mm. And of course the breathers on the side of the way, the, the uh, locomotive mm. that let airy mm. to circulate around, the fine snow was going through those mm. and piling up within. And then they were causing electric shorts. Um, and that, that's what was actually happening. Mm. And it's the same with leaves on the line. Mm. People don't understand that when the autumn comes and all the leaves start to fall and you, sometimes you'll be going through a cutting mm. and all the trees either side, all the leaves will fall off and they'll drop onto the line. And then when they die off, they become like mulch mm. on the top of the rail. And the braking system stops the wheels, but then it, it, what it does is it stops the wheel turning. Then it comes across these leaves that are turned to mulch and it's metal on metal. And all it does then is it stops turning, but there's no adhesion to the track. So it just slides mm. and it's sliding on this mulch and it just keeps on going. Mm. Um, the number of times I've run, or not me, but the driver has rubbed the train through Woodlesford Station. Um, because that was in you know, a, a cutting, um, and you could tell the minute he starts to put his brake on, we weren't going to be stopping. <laughs> you know? So everybody made a joke of that, but they were really serious problems. Mm. Um, most of the lo early locomotives and some of them today still have what we call sanders on mm. the front mm. and they have a pipe that leads directly onto the rail head. Mm. Um, and you could, and they used to put sand down. You could press a button and it would put sand down. Um, and that gave adhesion on the rail track between the rail and the wheel. And you got some grip then. Mm. And that's how they used to do it. I made a very thing on this, this film that we was in, if you ever watched it, I left London King's Cross on the most horrendous snowy night you've ever seen in your life. Mm. Um, and we left King's Cross two hours and 20 minutes late. Mm. Um, and we got to Wakefield and we were still two hours and 20 minutes late at Wakefield. We'd kept, we're at a really great time, mm. but I committed the cardinal sin. And as we left Wakefield, I went onto the PA and I said to the passengers, I expect us to be in at such and such a time mm. uh, because we'd kept such good time. Mm. Of course, what I hadn't bargain for his because Wakefield Westgate, to come out of that station, he's on an incline. Mm. You can't see it, 
because it's only a short, a small incline, but it's a long one. Mm. Um, and as we pulled out of the station, the train could not get any, any grip. Mm. And the driver did magnificently well to keep the wheels turning. Um, but it took us another two hours to get from Wakefield Westgate to Leeds. Um, <laughs> so I had to go back on the PA and apologize once again. I mean, people took it good out, but you know, it's things like that. And I, I actually had an, it, it, it's on the film. I actually had a knock on the door and a gentleman came to me and said, um, would you sign my ticket for me, please? Mm. To tell them what time we've got in. And I said, I'll give you a form if you want a refund. I said, it's not a refund. This is, I just needed to sign it and put the time that we've arrived back. I said, yeah, of course I can. I said, can I, can I ask you why? He said, yeah, cause I'm on day relief from Armley prison. And if I am got this, I'm going to be in serious trouble. <laughs> so I thought, oh yes, thank you very much. There you go. Sir. <laughs> We had our laughs as well. It, it was, it was, I, I loved the job at that time, you know. Is it working with the public and customer service and stuff? It's like you remember the bad experiences a lot of the time, but that means that most of them, you know, like most of them are fine. And then you remember the ones that are really good as well, you know, like when you spend that extra time with someone that appreciates it and they're really grateful, or you do something that's just nice, and yeah. then a letter comes in and says, like, Oh, they were so helpful. Like that, that kind of makes it worth it. And you get that, you get that yeah. more than, more than people would. I know, pleasure quite rightly say people mourn about the bad times and, and, the, and the, the people that abuse you and, and sham that. And there is no, there is no thing, but the good times where you can help people, they stand out. Mm. My colleague, my very best friend, John, he traveled, he was going to London one day and it was during the school holidays. Mm. And on leaving Wakefield, came across a young man who was only about 10, if he was out, nine or 10 years old. Mm. Uh, and he had, what well, I don't know, you, you're aware of the Yorkshire Day Rover that they used to have the, anywhere on the railway, anywhere on the buses mm. within Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And this kid showed him this guy and he said, where are you going? Well, I said, I'm going to wait for this. We've already passed Wakefield. Next stop, Doncaster. Mm. Um, so he says, oh, okay. So he said, well, you sit there. He says, and I'll go get somebody to meet you. Don't cast make sure you go back. But what used to happen was when the school auditors was on, the parents would buy the kids, believe it or not, we'd buy the kids a day over and say, mm -hmm. and I'll, off you go. Mm -hmm. You've got all day to go on, on buses or on trains or whatever travel is like. Mm -hmm. Wrong, but they did it. Mm -hmm. So John went and said, I'm going to put a young kid off at Doncaster. Uh, can you see he gets back on the train or actually to wait there? Um, but he went back and he was sat with the guy on the train and he said, oh, this guy's going to look after me now. He said, he don't mind me, dad. He's a friend of me dad's. So John said, well, okay, I've got the staff to meet you. John just, he just thought something was not right. Mm. So he, he, he called the transport police, uh, and the transport police came at Doncaster, um, and took him away. And this guy had tried to abduct the kid. They didn't know him from Adam mm. and he tried to abduct the kid. They arrested him, but they let him go on bail. Mm. They took the, the kid back to Leeds mm. and met up with his mother and his mother got some stern words as well. Mm. But at a later stage, uh, it came out that they'd found this guy again in London. He didn't answer to bail. Mm. Um, and they found him in London. Uh, and he was arrested. And when they did a proper check on him in London, 
um, he was wanted already um, because he'd kicked her down and out to death uh, in London. Um, and John got an award for that because they were they were convinced that had John not spotted what was going on there, this this young kid was probably going to be his 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 next victim, if you like. Um, and it's things like that. And and John went down and he got a, a major award. Exactly. He invited me down to go with him. And when you get things like that happening, then it, it gives you a, a bit of a boost to be quite honest. It doesn't matter all the bad ones that has gone on then. Mm. When you know that you've done something good like that, then I, and we'd all get it. Someone a much smaller uh, level than that. But, but it doesn't matter. You know, as it's quite hard to say, if you help somebody in the course of your day and then somebody writes in and says, oh, he did a really good job there, Mm. And the company bothered to send you because not all companies do it, but mm. um, they send you a letter saying, "Look, oh, this letter's come in, well done," and that that makes it all worthwhile. Wow. It, re- it really, really does. Mm. Uh, and I've had some good times with them. I've had some fun times with people. I really. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to move on to some of my questions now because um, yeah, we're, we're we're running possibly long, but um, we should be good still. So I'll start off with uh, COVID. So obviously, as key workers, the railway was running through COVID, through lockdown. I don't know, like, was it running a full service or I would imagine everything was kind of reduced because... No, it was a very, very... It, it was a reduced service in the early days mm. um, because obviously nobody knew quite how bad it was going to be and what it was going to be. Mm. So um, it, it was reduced, but nevertheless, people still had to go into work they they put in lots of uh, safety measures on train, whereas they would only book, uh, if you were booking a seat, they would book one person to a seat. So mm. you were essentially running around with probably half the people on the train that you would normally get simply because of the social distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to put special screens up on the catering buffet and things like that. Mm. in order that you had a screen between you and anybody coming to the buffet, mm. you wore the masks and everything else. Mm. So, yeah, they took all the safety precautions, and as those safety precautions got better, mm. then, yeah, they increased the services slightly. Mm. Um, but hundreds of thousands of staff were still going out there, putting themselves at risk, because you still got the people that didn't want to wear a mask. Mm. You still got the people that didn't want to social distance, mm. um, and you had to deal with those people. Mm. Um, so COVID was was not a great time for anybody, mm. and of course, it wasn't a great time for the companies because of the the loss of income that that was there. Mm. Um, but they got the subsidies from the government, so I think overall they made a good fist of of COVID. The staff did their bit. Mm. Um, you didn't get staff saying, oh, I don't want to do that because they got on with it. They did the job. Mm. Um, the union health and safety reps worked with the management to make sure that, that the precautions that were needed to be put in place were not just put in place, but were adhered to as well. Mm. Um, so it was, a, it was a difficult time without any doubt, but, mm. um, I think the railway personnel did a magnificent job throughout and, and they kept get trains running so people could get the, the people that needed to get to work, that had to go to work, 
did get to work. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was a difficult time for the railways, the same as everybody else. Mm. But we did what we had to do mm. uh, and battled on, if you like. Mm. I mean, could they furlough anyone? I mean, like I suppose people in offices, um, they're sort of more admin roles. Furlough was not a done thing on the railway, to be quite honest with you. Um, the railways run with, you always have a certain amount of what we call spare staff. Mm. So you ask staff that turn up with no particular job to do, that's their job is to turn up mm. in case anybody at the last minute goes off sick, yeah. has an accident coming into work, can't yeah. get to work. Yeah. You still have the staff there to fulfill that. Yeah. So things like that, where you would sit up in a mess room, probably maybe with, you know, another five or 10 people, because they would come in at regular intervals, say every three hours, something like yeah. that. Um, that was all curtailed, and they told people to stay at home, ring in at your book time. Mm. But you had to be at home ready if you were required to go in and do some work. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you, you got the spare people that would work from home. Mm. Um, well, everybody else, yeah, the office workers, they could work from home as well. But furlough, was anybody stood down on furlough? No, they weren't. Everybody had a job to do and they did it. Yes, it might have meant that they did actually have to come into work, mm. but they had to be on call Yeah, at the end of their phone in case they were needed. Yeah, and of course you're going to be having people who are obviously are getting infected and have to isolate and have to take time off. So you need that. It's not like you can reduce your capacity because you're going to lose that capacity anyway with people off sick yeah. and so on. Oh, we did have lots of staff that uh, were smitten by it. Mm. And of course they had to, they had them to stay at home, um, and we're not allowed into work. But again, um, to be fair to the companies, if you were, uh, if you got COVID and you had to be at home, then they would pay your basic wage anyway. Nobody was penalized for it. Mm. Um, but yeah, we suffered as much as anybody else did, but we battled through it and we worked together in order to get it, to get through it as most people had to do, the nurses and everybody else, you know what I mean? But no, we, we didn't have furlough or something. No, they didn't say to you, you'll, you'll just go home. And I don't believe, uh, I don't believe any of the chain operating companies actually played furlough for any of their staff at the ground. Did you, like, in terms of PPE and stuff, like how how easy and how good, how quick did that kind of come through? Was it? Everyone had to sort of bring their own, or was that supplied? Or no, no. Um, it was slower than it should have been in in the outset. I'll be quite honest with you, mm -hmm. um, because what you've got is, particularly at Leeds, you've got five or six different rail operating companies all operating within Leeds City Station, um, all doing their own thing. Um, some of the masks that they provided to start with probably weren't the best quality. But that was simply because it was a case of just what you could get. Let's get what we can yeah. and, and have that rather than nothing at all. Well, mm. um, again, it, it was one of the occasions where the health and safety reps and the company management team worked very closely together. Mm. Um, and it, it was a very good close relationship. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't see many fallouts or my reps never used to get back to me and say, look, you know, there was to be on fallout about, mm. as you're saying, PPE equipment and, and whether the masks were up to the standards that they should have been and things like that. 
Mm. But there was nothing, I don't think there was much too serious. You know what I mean? It was, mm. And even the companies themselves had to work together because clearly you were mixing with people on the platforms. You had to be very careful there. So, but it, it, overall, it was a very collaborative sort of period where people did work together in order to keep it down as much as they possibly could. And, it, and I think overall it worked. Mm. I mean, did, uh, normally I ask sort of how COVID's potentially changed your work and working methods. I mean, do, do, you, think it's, do you think it's changed the railway? That's a difficult question to answer, to be quite honest with you. I think it changed some of the people more than it changed the railway, if you like. Um, it, it, it made some people very fearful. Mm. And it made some people, even when it was, it was terminating towards the end and people had had their, their injections mm. um, and the, the sanctions were being lifted and things like that, we still had an awful lot of people that had suffered illnesses mm. um, that they perhaps associated with COVID, even if it wasn't COVID. And yeah, for a long time, a lot of people were very, very wary and they were wary of going back out there onto trains that were, and whatever the government would have you believe, that were getting fairly busy, fairly quickly yeah. after the things were lifted yeah. um, and the local services. It, it, it wasn't as bad for the intercity people because you've got it. You've got a huge train that's that's ten cultures long, um, so you've got a bit of leeway. When you work in the local services, you know the local services out to, you know, within the West Yorkshire area where you've got two or three, yeah. four coaches, it, it made it a lot harder. And a lot of people, when they started filling up again, um, they did get a little bit worried about you know whether this was the right thing to do at the right time. Um, and still today, we have a lot of staff. Mm. That go to work and still put the mask back on again. You know yeah. what I mean? But it's, that's the thing. If you're watching the numbers and stuff, it's like, you know, the numbers going higher through supposedly it being over than it was during lockdown. Yeah. And so if you're following that, you're kind of like, oh, this is worse than it's kind of ever been. So yeah. it does make it, you know, there's a difference. When it starts hitting again, when it starts hitting the news that, this week we've had another thousand cases or whatever, you know what I mean? And then, and then you're going back into a tin box that's got no restrictions anymore. Mm. Um, and to be quite honest with you, there was a lot of worries about the air conditioning services and the units that you were adding there because all the air conditioning units on the older terms we do, would they just recirculated the air? Yes, it was filtered through when it went back in, but it was still recirculated. And people got, you know, they read the reports on particles in the air and things like that. Mm. And it did cause a lot of concern. And I think even now, as I say, we still have some members of staff that still go to work and put the mask on just as a matter of course. Now, I think it's still with some of the people. But it did cause a lot of heartache for a lot of people. It, it worried a lot of people. Um, I mean, particularly some of the younger element. Yeah, I mean, there was that woman that died early on as well, the, train it was a train guard i think if someone within the rail service yeah someone has spat at her and gave her it and she died from it yeah um, there were several all around the country yeah, that, yeah that had contacted it in the early days before we'd actually got to the point yeah where what we've got to do this you've got to put a mask on you've got to do it it was too late for those people yeah it was like it was, it was sad but because obviously 
well, the people working in hospitals, they've got, you know, they they have that awareness and the knowledge of the PPE and stuff. And then in the yeah. early days of that, it, that wasn't really widespread. And it was kind of, so there was a lot, I remember a lot of transport workers were, were getting ill uh, and were a lot of the people that were dying of COVID in their sort of early death. Yeah. That's, well, I mean, that's how I remember it anyway. Well, there was without any doubt. And, and we had a lot of people that, that were vulnerable, not because of COVID, but were vulnerable to COVID because mm. of the moral illnesses that they had. Mm. Um, and we had to take, you know, extra special precautions for those sorts of people. And to this day, we've still got some people that are very vulnerable to it um, and are still not back at work fully mm. uh, because of the fear that they've got that it hasn't gone away as, mm. as much as people would say. Mm. Um, that's going to take a lot of getting over. Mm. We'll do Brexit first. So, um, you know, obviously within the last couple of years, we have now Brexited. Have you noticed, I mean, obviously you're in kind of, you retired from the work, the railways, but I mean, in terms of your engagement through the union still, like, have you seen a change in the railway um, as a result of Brexit? Like, and has that change been good, bad, you know, neutral? Um, if I'm honest, I, I really didn't do much train work when we came out of Brexit. I'd already finished by then, you know, mm. um, or very nearly finished by then. Um, I, I guess I've not had anything reported back to me as a rep mm. that I think, or as a as a branch secretary, that people have come and, and credited directly to Brexit, if mm. you like. Um, I, I can't talk for the people down in London and places like that because they may well have been affected by it differently in the capital. Um, but I, I've got, honestly, I've got, I've got no comments really that I could give to you that says Brexit has made this difference to me or to my colleagues, um, at work. Obviously, the numbers of, of people that would normally be coming into the country as uh, as tourists and things like that, but that's been more affected by the COVID than, than I could say to Brexit, to be mm. quite honest. So no, I can't honestly say that Brexit, that I could comment on, mm. that, that has changed anything as far as we as railway workers are concerned. Mm. Yeah. Train uh, parts, maybe. You know, yeah. importing train parts and shortages of things. When the Attache trains first came in, and I was on the working group in the early days that went around, you knowing I first saw the Attache train, it was a, it, it a mock-up in, in cardboard, to be quite honest with you, um, in places. And we went across to uh, Germany mm -hmm. to look at catering facilities and they were building the cake, the kitchens and things like that. Mm -hmm. But we were still in the, the area at that stage, we were still in the common market. So, you know, no, I, I, I honestly haven't seen anything that I could attribute to Brexit being either positive or, or detrimental to both. Mm. Others may be able to tell you different, I can't. Mm. Well, uh, I haven't heard anyone say anything positive about it yet. I'm well, I'm not saying doing. As, a, as an individual, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I didn't agree with it. I, I voted to remain. 
Um, me as an individual, I think, yes, it, it's, the, it's been the wrong thing to do. It's caused an awful lot. And I don't think we've actually seen the fallout that it will come yet. I think that's building up and building up and building up, and it'll come all at once. Um, I think we've seen bits of it. We've seen, you know, examples of it. Uh, we've seen charges on parcels coming into the country that never would have done. Amazon, I'm thinking, regretting a lot of it because of the charges that's put on them and the time restrictions that it's put on mm. and the road blockages of people trying to get down to ferries and things like that um, because of the extra work. But as an individual, I think it was wrong. And yes, I think it's had an adverse effect on, on this country, but that's just me, you know what I mean? And I don't think we've actually seen the worst of it yet. I think the worst is still to come. Great. Um, so I'm going to, I'm running through these questions now. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do the climate change question next. So obviously, again, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about your experience with, still with the union. Um, so the question normally is within your work, um, what can you do to either adapt to to mitigate or to raise awareness around climate change so i know with most of the unions they have like green reps they have a green agenda like is it something that was ever present within your career or like within your work now sort of like the union rep work is that something that you sort of deal with is it a concern well yeah i mean it it's it's becoming a great concern mm. um, because everybody's now uh, deciding that we've got to come and we have got to cut it down. In my opinion, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, on the railway, geez, what could we say? We were running around on diesel trains that were running at 125 mile an hour that were belching diesel fumes out into into the atmosphere mm. uh, for donkeys' years. Mm. Um, and yeah, I guess that was affecting people that were, were traveling on those trains, the hearing, the breathing, going back into the old days where you start and the union's still out, uh, an asbestos register, because a lot of the aspect, uh, the stuff that the trains were built in, you were, you were in a box that was covered in asbestos, things like that. And it, it, it's no different when you, you know, the diesel trains have done an awful lot of damage. There's no doubt about it. Mm. Um, what can we do to, alleviate that as either a union or, or as an industry well clearly we're trying to get as much electric trains as we can these days which will help the situation down um i'm guessing the other side of that is uh catering waste and things like that that, that will come off of trains mm. um and yes um uh, pre-packed food comes in plastic packaging mm. uh, that's got to be disposed of uh, and i'm guessing the railway system um, as a whole, uh, has got a huge amount, uh, of waste that's going out there mm. in plastic bottles, plastic, um, and cardboard, uh, full packaging. Uh, yeah, they're going to have to have a look at that. I'm guessing if, uh, if they're going to really reach their zero tolerance levels, which I don't believe we'll ever achieve, but it's, you know, it's got something that's got to be worked on. Um, as an industry, I guess it's the waste. You could say, you know, the human waste didn't help at one stage because 
it was punched straight out onto tracks, something that these days you don't get because all the toilets now are into huge tanks and they're taken away on a night and clean and emptied, hopefully, um, in a manner that helps the, uh, uh, the climate change. Um, so I, I don't think the industry can do a great deal that they aren't doing already, if you like, except perhaps cutting waste things down and uh, in catering and things like that. Uh, the trains, they're trying all the time to get better trains with no pollution. And I think they succeeded with the electric ones, although and, and the, the diesels are pretty much put in the sideies these days. There's very few of them. Some of the smaller railways have still got some. Mm. Um, I, I don't think it's... A lot that we could do other than what we're trying to do now. I mean, do you know, I, just think, I think they've made the trains free. France are doing them incredibly cheap. Germany's doing a whole bunch of cheap trains. I mean, um, obviously when we're sort of, you know, hitting upwards of 35 degrees and stuff, I mean, other issues with, obviously the cold affects the railways. We talked about the wrong kind of snow. I mean, you know, there's the wrong kind of heat as well. If you've got expanding metal or expanding gauges and yep. stuff, I mean, how's that? Do you think that's something that. And it will directly, it, it yeah. does directly affect the trade without any doubt. Heat, mm. the, the, the recent heat wave that they are, mm. you have to, you have to look at the fact that the, the tracks are made of old steel, mm. um, steel expands and contracts. Mm. with heat and cold. Mm. Um, and yes, uh, only recently in the heat wave, we were having to cut um, speed restrictions down. Mm. Uh, and you had to, we have guys out, and some people even laughed at the fact that we had maintenance people out there mm. painting. Oh, painting the railway white. The yeah. railway white. Yeah. Simply because it, it reflects the heat away. Mm. Um, so there's things like that that you can do. And, and yeah, the, the fact that, that climate change is among us and that it is getting hotter mm. will have a detrimental effect on the railway because each of the levels that we, we suffered just recently mm. caused an awful lot of damage. Tracks expand. When tracks expand, it buckles mm. uh, and it becomes a, a huge safety issue on the railway. So I'm not quite sure how we could... You know, how we can stop that happening, whether there's something that can go to, to the steel or the, the, that stops that happening. But yeah, it has a huge effect on, on the railways mm. as far as that is concerned. It also has a huge effect of the people that's, that's in those coaches because they're getting hot. Yeah. Well, overeating of coaches, mm. um, has been one of our major bugbears for years. Mm. The air conditioning units are not used to having to react to such heat as that mm. uh, and and you end up with it, it sucking heat back into the coach mm. it's already you know a, a breaking point mm. um and we've had lots and lots of problems with that and that will only get worse mm. as the as the climate gets hotter mm. um they're gonna have to have a look at what sort of uh, air conditioning units we've got on our trains mm. And you're right, you, you're quoting the European railways at the moment and certainly after COVID and things like that, they've decided to cut fares considerably, make trains free for shorter journeys and people there get people off the roads that are, that are using the cars at this stage. Do I ever believe that's something that will happen in this country? No, I don't. I don't think this government dare do it. But I think yeah, that's been yeah. led some 
the public like you know the lockdown here you know to me when when i saw the bbc on the friday night before the monday of the lockdown and the they were saying on the news there they'd cancelled the football i was like oh all right this is serious now we're like we're closed yeah. now they've cancelled football yeah closed. your yardstick in it <laughs> so i i think you know like those kind of things if they do come they will come from the bottom up because you know like they 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 haven't got an idea between any of them i think you're right it has to and you know the the demonstrations that we're getting these days are getting bigger and uh, and more profound if you like mm. uh, and you're probably right it's mm. um I'm mindful of talking about the railways that, that they've made cheap in. I don't know if you've, if you've been online and you've seen that's been put out by the TSSA union. Mm. Um, and I don't often speak well of the TSSA union because <laughs> they, they often sat on the fence and did nothing. But they put a video out. If you get a minute, go on, if you haven't already seen it, mm. go on, I think it's on YouTube. Mm. Um, and put TSSA thank you or whatever, something like that. And they put a video out, um, and it's it's a video of the European people, and it's that, and it's in France, it's in Germany, I believe it's in Spain. It, it's the general public, and the video starts with them turning and looking into the camera and saying, "We would like to thank the people of Great Britain for having." privatized railways because that means our governments and our nationalized railways can buy large parts of your railway, mm. which will pay to keep our railway cheap and efficient. Mm. And it goes on throughout. And it, 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 for me, it's a brilliant video. Mm. It really is. Mm. And, and as you say, we get to the point where we might have to consider doing that, but they won't because they've got share owners to pay. Mm. And put cheap tickets is not good. But then I suppose you could go back to the break. switch this light on and then yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it goes a little bit back to the Brexit thing then though. So because you know, if you've got utilities and, and railways that are owned by European companies and the whole thing is like we're out of the EU, oh but like our utilities and our railway are still funding and subsidizing their utilities and railways. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, that's kind of big. One of these people actually says, even though you're out of the EU, it does not matter. Mm. We got, and the quote, I think, £13 million pounds mm. from just one of the companies. Mm. That the quote in these figures, and it's been very difficult to get the public to understand that. Mm. That, you know, our, our privatization is subsidizing their nationalized railways abroad. That's where the money's going. Um, it's been invested in other railways mm. and that's of course why they can afford to put the fares down or give free fares for a while, mm. um, until people get back on the feet. And of course it has the benefit of you sit quite rightly saying, takes people off the roads, mm. but do I envisage that happening over here? Fred not. This will be an interesting one with you. I, I, I want to talk about this because I feel that more and more of everybody's work is becoming you have to do some social media, even if you're not producing content yourself, like you're appearing in content or people are asking for quotes or you have to work, you know, in something like teams or like it's becoming more and more part of how we work. So 
do you have to do any social media work yourself? Obviously, you're doing this podcast um, and you said that you've been doing sort of media interviews recently. But in terms of the social media aspect, uh, do you have to do much? And if you do, do you think that the time you spend on it is worth that time? Like, does it give value back in terms of what comes back for you? Social media within my job as a trade unionist mm. um, and within my job as I was on train, mm. it, it's a double-edged sword. Mm. It, it's a magnificent tool if you use it right. Mm. Um, during the lockdown, we had to, we did all our branch meetings virtually uh, on Zoom. Mm-hmm. Um, the staff on the trains that stayed at home or that did, when they are, where did, in each in you have a, what you call a training day and it's to update the staff on anything new that's in, in their particular realm of work or whatever. And that, that's one day uh, every month. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they did that. They, get, they have the mobile phones that the company provided mm-hmm. and they put teams on there. And they actually did the safety days, sat at home. Rather than coming and sitting in a the classroom, they did it at home. Mm. Okay, not great if you've only got one room or anything like that, you know. And But, but yeah, it does that. Um, at work, the companies have all um, embraced social media. Mm. Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad. Mm. They have their own Twitter accounts, they have their own Facebook accounts, they have all this that they can relate with the passengers about. Mm. Um, it's a double-edged sword for the staff because of the trade unionists. I have to tell the staff, be very, very careful yeah. of what you put on your social media platform. Mm. Um, and I have had disciplinaries where I've had, I've had people dismissed mm. because of the comments that they put on social media that the companies have decided will bring the company into disrepute. Mm. So it's a double-edged sword if you look at it that way. As a trade unionist, it's an invaluable tool for us Mm. because we can now set groups up within the industry, within other areas, and we can talk to each other and we can see what's going on elsewhere. So we're more up-to-date with it. The trade union movement itself has without doubt embraced social media. Mm. But again, with the caveat that please be careful what you do. I, I mentioned earlier the, the, the massive bulge that we got uh, in this strike ballot. Um, and I, I'm absolutely certain that social media helped us out in, in getting that massive response to it. Um, we had direct access to people on their social media. Mm. We did what we call phone banking mm. where, you know, I would get all my, a list of all my members, mm. um, within a particular company. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ring them and talk to them. Have you sent your paperback? Mm. We did, uh, texting mm-hmm. where we asked them exactly the same question. Never told them what to vote. Never said what yeah, to vote. Yeah. Just said. Have you sent your vote back? It's essential you send your vote back because of the percentages. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. We did that on varying groups that were set up, you know, um, railway family groups, wherever. So, yeah, social media, it's had a massive, massive effect. 
mm. um, on both my working life mm. um, and my union life as well. It's made it so much easier um, for me to contact people, for me to speak to people directly, mm. for me to make plans, uh, for me to get information out. Mm. But the other side of that is you also have to be very, very careful about what you do, mm. who you do it or who you speak to. Mm. There's plenty of people out there just, and the companies themselves have people that sit there and do nothing but look at social media. Yeah. And if they say something on there that they think is out of order, then you'll soon be pulled in about it. It's absolutely not. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think it's, it, it's a brilliant concept if it's used correctly. Mm. Um, and certainly I don't think I could do my union job without it now. Mm. I think we get, you use it to the best of your ability, if you like. Mm. And I used it for contacting my members and having conversations with my members. And as I say, we had branch meetings mm. over Zoom mm. for the best part of 18 months. Mm. Uh, it was difficult to start with because you've got to set it all up. You've got to get people used to it. Mm. Um, but it worked. It kept us in the loop and it kept us talking to each other. And it kept in the... Uh, in the outset, I think it actually increased the numbers of people that joined in mm. because we're a young generation mm. these days mm. and people are all fair with social media and they'll go on and do social media, whereas they won't get out of the armchair and come and walk down to the local meeting room or the pub to, to sit in a branch meeting and do it, but they'll do it online. Mm. Um, so yeah, I encompass it, but I'm very careful with it. Because it can be as bad as, as it can be good. Um, but I don't think I've been without it these days. And coming from somebody, you know, that's an old phobic, then, you know, I've had to learn to use it. But I learned quickly and I, I think it's a good thing. But it's got to be used correctly. Yeah, I mean, I'd like I, you mentioned the pub there. And obviously there's a long history of, you know, work and union work being done in the pub. Um I'll tell you some of those spaces have kind of gone. I'm thinking that, yeah, that th this is a kind of, you know, I've heard platforms described as like malls and they kind of are of like, you've got this window of various shops you can look in. So it's quite a good organizing space for you. Obviously. Well, we can do it because we, we, we actually still do where necessary hybrid meeting. Mm. We do now meet back in, in, I don't think you can have a better meeting than face to face with the guys mm. so they can say what they want to say. Um, within the confines of that place, but we do have, we've carried on. We have some people that have got problems that don't allow them to go into pubs or have had problems that don't allow them to go into pubs, mm. but we struggle to get a meeting room that's not in a pub these days, to be quite honest with you. Mm. Um, but we, we have decided that we'll use a hybrid meeting now and those people, if they, if they can't make, and there's, there's people that's genuinely live out of your area. That, that don't want to be traveling in to sit two hours and talk to you and then travel away again. So we use hybrid meetings and we say, look, if you can't genuinely can't make it, I don't want it to be a substitute, mm. but if you genuinely can't make it and you want to take part, then I'll set it up and we'll have a hybrid meeting. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it, it serves its purpose without any doubt whatsoever. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think we'd have had the success that we've had uh, in recent ballots or things like that without it. It's as simple as that. A very simple, quick way of getting your message across. Yeah, yeah. And getting it to the right people. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so uh, we'll crack on. Uh, where are we up to? Let's do UBI. So uh, universal basic income, and you can think of this retroactively as well if you want, uh, but if you had a universal basic income, uh, would you have still done the same job that you did? Would you have done it the same way? Um, and how do you think universal basic income would have affected your work? What do you mean by that? Okay, so you're getting enough money each month, kind of like a pension, but work, yeah. but it paid more. Okay. Uh, so you're getting enough money to cover your, your rent, your basic needs. Uh, so you don't have to necessarily worry about bills and so on. So it's a way of, it, it's a practical yeah. way, basically, of asking the question, if money wasn't a concern, would you have still done what, you know, would you still do the job? It's hypothetical, really, isn't it? But mm. um, if, if I'm honest, I, I don't think, personally, I could have been one of these that just sat back and did nothing. Mm. Um, I, I would have had to have had something to do. Mm. Yes, it would be nice for me to say, well, yeah, I've got £1,000 a week coming in. I can go out and do what I like. Mm. I can go in there, but you get bored with that. You know, I, mean? I, I get bored. I've been two weeks holiday. I love it, but then you know, me and my other half say, "Well, you know, it's great. It's always nice to get back home, get back into the swing of things." So, would I have? Now, I've often said, uh, and and this, I, 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 I one of these that says, if I had to live my life over, mm. would I change much of it? Uh, and I don't believe I would, to be quite honest with you. Um, and yet I've had some rough times, you know, when I was a young man and, and my dad and my weren't getting on and mm. things got out of hand and things like that. Mm. Would I have changed those things? I'm not sure I would, to be honest with you, because it gave me an outlook on life that I don't think there's much could face me these days. Mm. I mean, mm. and it, it wouldn't have faced me through my work life. Because as much as me and my dad didn't get on, we did make up before mm. uh, he sadly passed away. Uh, and what my dad taught me, I mean, I lost my mum when I was 11. Mm. And my dad was a long-distance lorry driver, having come out of the process. And he had, I got four brothers and sisters. Mm. And um, he packed work in to raise his kids. And yes, at the time, I thought he was a bad bugger and he, he rolled with an iron fist. But you know what? The life skills that he taught us through all that, I learned later he did it for our benefit and not anything else. And he, he taught me life skills that I thanked him for ever since. And it's like work. Work's done exactly the same. So I could never see my life where I haven't had a job or something to do. Mm. Um, it's been, been part of the tapestry of me. And it's made me where I am today. And I've helped a lot of people on the way because I've got that work and because I enjoyed doing that work. Mm. When I joined the railway in 69, did I think I'd be there 48 years later? No, I didn't. You know, it was a job that at that time suited, but I was a man of the world and I was going to change and I was going to move around. And mm. But I loved the job and I stuck with it. And I don't think it would have... I, I had a comfortable life at one stage, you know. The, the, the wages that I was getting, kept me in a, a reasonable uh, standard of living. Mm. Uh, we had a holiday, we had a car, you know, we did things that we wanted to do. Um, and I felt proud that I'd worked for that. So I don't think, I don't think it would have changed me a great deal. I think I've loved my working life. Mm. And I think I would have stuck with it, to be quite honest with you. I might not have, 
I might have gone further afield than I could have afforded with a wage if I'd got some money coming in as well. But would I have working? Probably not, no. Because I, I liked my working life. I've liked my life throughout. Um, and I think everything that I've done has taught me something. Um, and I'll be eternally grateful for that. So, you know, if, if it's all you've ever known, then I can understand why people do it. Mm. But if it's not all you've ever known, I don't think it'll ever be a replacement for a working life. I really don't. That's just my personal view. Well, I think uh, as well, because your position uh, as a union rep, I mean, like all that time you've given to the union, you've also given to the railway. And, you know, a rep's not a full-time officer. It's not a paid position. Like you, you have given a lot of volunteer hours and work and, you know, like, you, you uh, obviously you you're not sort of everyone's motivated motivated by money to a degree because you kind of have to be and you're incentivized to be but you know you're obviously not motivated purely by money and that I just need to be earning more and this that and the other you you're already doing kind of voluntary work but it's kind of in line with the work that you're already doing and I think that's it's it's a weird relationship because obviously you have more of a sense of ownership over your role because you're being active about your role. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I've had this discussion. I don't, I, no rep, no lay rep, as we talked about earlier, uh, or any of our lay reps get paid for what they do. They do it. And I did it because, as I say, in the early days, I saw quite a lot of, uh, of injustice that I didn't like, and, and I felt somebody needed to speak up for somebody that couldn't speak for themselves. Mm. Money, Jesus. The hours that I put in as a rep were unbelievable. I had this discussion. We talked about Bob Crow earlier. Mm. I once had the discussion with Bob Crow. When I became a branch secretary, I don't get a small payment for being a branch secretary. Mm. Every three years, every three years, every three months, I got a payment from the union mm. um, because, you know, I do a lot of it at home. All the union stuff is at home. I do a lot yeah. of work. And it's work. So, we believe in being paid for work. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so I got that. But I was having the discussion with Bob one day, and I said, Bob, you're, you're the great union man. But I said, let me tell you this. You talk about your branch secretaries uh, and me, me getting my three monthly pay. I said, and you know this, if I was to... If I was to divide the hours that I put in with the money that you pay me, <laughs> I should be taking you to court for paying me less than the minimum wage. It's as simple and as easy as that. <laughs> but the point is, I don't do it for the money. I've never done it for yeah. the money. And if I did, I wouldn't be doing it. And no, no rep would be doing it for money because you don't get paid any as a lay rep. I'm fortunate I get a little bit, uh, and the little bit that I get pays for me a week's holiday somewhere, or uh, a two weeks holiday. Um, and my other half says, well, it won't pay you ever enough for the time she has to sit and listen to me on the phone, talking to members that members don't look at the clock when they want to ring you up and tell you they've got a problem. They ring you up and they expect you to pick that phone up. And I told my partner 27 years ago when we met, that the union was a big part of my life uh, and that uh, it would be difficult for her at times because sometimes I'd be called out, I'd be at meetings, I'd be doing this, the phone would go constantly. Mm. 
And she accepted that. But one night we were in the restaurant and the phone went and I answered it in the middle of a meal. And while I was talking, I looked at her face. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Something was wrong. You crossed a boundary. Well, yeah. And, and I said, you know, I said something wrong. She said, John, I know you told me all about all this. She mm. said, but just sometimes yeah. there's places where, and I said, well, you should tell me that. You know, I just took it for granted because that's what I've done always. <laughs> but I made a promise there and then that when I was out with her personally having a meal, then the phone yeah. went off. And if they couldn't find somebody else, then that's tough luck. But, mm. you know, so it, it, it can have a detrimental effect as well. But as you say, none of it of mine has ever been done for money. Mm. I've done it because I loved helping people mm. and I grew good at the job. There's no doubt about that. I, I, I was a good rep and, and I, I feel I'm not beating my own drum, but I was a good rep and I was told so by so many people that mm. I had to have had something. Mm. Um, and that was enough for me. When you take somebody in on a disciplinary or you take them in on the social care course and things like this, mm. um, and you get a result and you see them in tears because you've got a result and they come and thank you. Mm. That's all the, that's all I ever needed, you know, for them to say, thank you, you did a great job. And no money in the world can replace that. And I mean, it's, when I, I, not many years ago, I got a phone call from the daughter of a lady that was one of my members um, that was about to pass away. And they, they offered her redundancy before she passed on. Um, so that she could get her life sorted out, if you like. She mm. was coming to the end of ever, both work-wise and, and life-wise. And she didn't think that they'd offered her what they should have offered her. Mm. Uh, and I went, I said, well, that, that doesn't sound right to me. And I went in there and quoted the book at them and told them what they should be offering her and how they should be doing it. Mm. Um, and castigated them a little bit, saying, you've got somebody here that's in the twilight of their life. Not because they want to be, and all they're asking for this redundancy for is because they want to set their family up properly and get everything sorted and paid for before she passes away. And what you're doing by not doing this right is despicable. Um, and we got it sorted. And I think we ended up with an extra five or six thousand pounds on what had been offered. And do you know what? Their family, they rang me up, they thanked me, they sent me cards. They could, you know, their daughter came to me a few days later. And in tears and just hooked me and said, thank you so much for what you've done. No amount of money can, can pay for that. And I mean, it's, and, and if I got that once a year, now we're happy. You know, it's just, I love the job and I love doing it. And money wouldn't have made any difference. I'd have still done it. Do you think it made you stay in the railway as well? I think it did. Yes. As I say, I had no intentions of staying on the railway. Mm. But the railway, not so much now, but the railway, then when I started, there was a railway family and it was a big family and everybody looked after each other and everybody helped each other. And there was tremendous camaraderie between everybody. Mm. And I enjoyed going to work, mm. you know, what I mean? uh, and along came privatization and sort of changed a lot of that. Mm. Um, and it changed my attitude a lot as well. I still love the people. I still went to work, but I didn't enjoy it quite as much. Mm. 
But then, strangely enough, that's when they needed us as reps most. Mm. So, you know, you got more satisfaction out of the, the repping side of it than you did your working life side of it at mm. that point. But now I wouldn't have changed anything. I'd have still gone to work, you know what I mean? Because I loved it. The people that I was with, the camaraderie that we had, it was money couldn't buy that. Money could not buy that. Friends to this day, you know what I mean? That I still yeah. go back to gold to see some of my old people. And, and I've been over here now for, oh God, 35 years. Yeah. And I still go, and they still ring me. And we still go out and, and have a good time. I go over all there to see them. You know, it, it's a friendship. And they say, once you're in the family, you never leave it. Mm. Um, so, no, I would have worked through it all, no matter what. You know, if I'd have won colds, I'd have probably still won. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, something until you get it, you can't say. But no, well, it's not very affecting me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, so final question from me, which is um, a question from uh, an American trade unionist that I found online, who I think is very good, uh, Jane McAlevey. Uh, so the question is, if you could change any three things about your work right now, um, what would they be? So again, you can go retroactively or you could talk about the, the sort of work that you're doing at the moment. To be honest with you, I'd like, if I could change the system, I would, I'd want the railways renationalized mm. because I think the railways has to be a public service for the people. It's and that's not anymore, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I've always been a great believer that I had British rail had the subsidies that private railway companies had had pumped into it. Mm. It would have been one of the best. Uh, systems in the world without any doubt you had the brains you had the ingenuity you had the people that knew how to run a railway but just didn't have the funding to do it and now you've got the opposite you've got people that ain't got a clue about running a railway that don't give a monkeys about the staff to be quite honest with you maybe that's too sweeping there is some of the management team that don't care but when you've got blokes like branson mm. that bought the railway and then put out all these things that said, your staff come first. Mm. My company threatened me with the lawyers because when Branson took over from Virgin and he took over the franchise, mm. I got hold of the document that he'd put to the company to show the changes that he was going to make. Mm. I shouldn't have had it. Um, and I got it quite anonymously. Somebody said, I think you might like to read this. Mm. And I read it. It was 117 pages and I read it and I were going to meetings at that time and I sat there and talked to them and they came in in this new big world and said to us, we're going to put a blank sheet of paper on the desk. We want to change the way that we run the railway and particularly Virgin Rail. They want you to be like the airlines are and, and he looks after his staff and he does all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I said, okay, that's fine. But we want to work with you. And I said, well, give us your ideas. And I, no, no, the ideas have got to come from you. You know, I said, no, we're going to change it together. Then the ideas have got to come from both of us. Mm. And I stuck this for about three meetings. And then in the end, I'd just had enough. And I said, look, when are you going to tell us the truth? Well, what do you mean? I said, I know what you're going to do. I've seen the document. I've read the document. I know what you're going to do. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, oh, so if I was to quote to you, 
that we will amalgamate the train guard with the catering manager and we'll call him a customer service leader and he will run the train and be responsible for all the staff. You don't know anything about that then. And we will achieve this by making everybody multi-skilled mm. and the rate for this rate, of, no, the, the rate for this job will be this. I said, so you, you look me in the eyes and tell me that you haven't read that document and that's not part and parcel of plans. And the end of the meeting there and then. And the next thing I got was a letter from the company solicitors saying that I had a confidential document. And if I dared to share it with anybody, because it had confidential information in it, I would be sued. Mm. And I said, well, that's interesting. So I got our solicitors on from the union. Mm. And they said, you tell them to speak to us. Mm. Uh, and they did. And then they sent me another letter saying, look, we may have been a bit hasty here. <laughs> um, perhaps if you could give us the document back. No. So I said, yeah, fine. I didn't mind, but a problem with that. <laughs> I said, I'm going on holiday on Saturday for two weeks. So I said, I've got this document. I'll bring it in to the station and I'll hand it to one of your managers to give to you. Oh, no, 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 please don't do that. Because there was a big section in there about what they were going to do to managers as well. And they said, no, don't do that. Hang on to it and just give us it back when you get back. So I wait until the first big meeting and I handed it back with a big flurry and said, there you are, there's your document. If you'd have asked me for it in the first place, you'd have got it. There would have been no need for solicitors to be involved in it, lawyers to be involved. But I said, I'll just leave you with this thought. You can get the document back, but you can't take it out of there. I've read it. So when we start negotiations again, just remember, I've read it. And, you know, so I'd change all that. I would invest more money into a nationalized industry, give the people the resources that these guys have had to run the job and put people in charge that know the railways. Uh, that, that's, that's one change in that, mate. Um, trade union wise, I don't know. I think my union's good because my union is a bottom up led union. All the people that's in my union are elected, um, and they have to be reelected after a set amount of time by the members. So I'm not sure I'd change a lot about the way the, the, the union runs. I think if there was one thing I'd change, I'd try to make it less, less London centric because it is very London centric. Uh, and some of the regions feel sometimes that they're left out of it. Mm. So perhaps I'd make it less London centric to be quite honest with you. Um, and you want three things I'd change. You don't have to have three, but if you've got three, um, does it have to be railway orientated or? I'd like a, I'd like a labor government that gets back to socialism. Um, but I think that's, that's a dream that may well turn into a nightmare mm. because I'm on like hell about Tories. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure that my friend at the top of the labor party, um, is going to be any better. I think he's, he's a blue red, if you like, for me, I don't think he's got an idea about what they're going to do. He runs and hides at the first inkling of it. Um, I think the, the Labour Party need to take a look at themselves and realise that it was the trade unions that formed the Labour Party all those wee years back in Doncaster. Um, and they need to get back to some more socialist views. I'd like a guy like Richard Bergen to get up there and 
and do a little bit because I think Richard's a, a good socialist Labour MP. He talks a lot of sense. Um, and I think we need to get back to that, to be quite honest with you. Um, and the people say, well, will the Labour government change anything? I don't know is the truth, but I'd still prefer a Labour government than the shower that we've got in the moment. So, you know, they're the three things I think I'd change. Any, any government's going to change things. <laughs> it, it's what they change and how much, that, how much damage that does. I think we went downhill the minute that we elected Tony Blair. I think we went from being a socialist uh, party, and I'm not a member anymore, um, and my union are not affiliated. Um, and people say, why did you drop out? And I correct them and say, we didn't drop out. We got expelled. Mm. Uh, we tried to pay our subs and they wouldn't have us. And that was simply because they tried to tell us that we had to back only uh, Labour candidates uh, in local elections and in uh, general elections. Mm. Uh, and we objected to that and said, there's plenty of local government officers or local uh, people standing for councils and office that if they agree with our principles and they fight for our principles, then we should be able to vote for those if they're the best candidate. And they said, no, you will vote for the Labour Party or we will expel you. And that's what they do. I see us reaffiliated? Certainly not with this shower, no. I mean, like, you know, if I'm going to be saying ridiculous things now, um, but yeah, like anyone that's been to a private school just shouldn't be in the Labour Party. What are you doing here? Go away. Don't need you. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. They haven't got a clue. Your party's over there, the Tories. Yeah. Go sit yep. with them. That's who you are. Yep. <laughs> I did a podcast a few days ago. Uh, um, some kid had rung me up to do one. He was just 15 minutes. Mm. Um, and he asked me something about the Tories. I said, well, you, you're not getting... The Tories are not and never will be the friends of the working class. Mm -hmm. They're all millionaires that are all looking after themselves. And it, oh, we jumped on that. It, oh, but, well, they're not all millionaires. Yeah, they I are. said, no, but that all want to be millionaires. And that's, that's the difference. They will be at the end of their careers. Yes, exactly. That's their sole aim in life, isn't it? Yeah. After they've had a few handouts, you know. Yeah. Like, and yeah. we mean real handouts here, like, you know, say, Ken. Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, they, not like a few thousand in benefits or whatever, but like an entire region yeah. or entire company. Exactly. And the same people that are talking about having to cure the, the problems with the, our companies at the minute mm. uh, and the absolute outrageous cost of, of living. Mm. But yeah, of course, in the end, you look at them and there's 50 odd of them have had the electricity bills and the power bills paid for them. While they're in there, you know, they get subsidised meals, they get subsidised drinks, mm. they claim this, they claim that. It's about staff. 15 pay rises every five minutes. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what they said to me. He, he, he spoke to me on the other podcast and he said, well, um, Boris said that we can't afford a pay rise because uh, all that does is feed inflation. And I said, look, I'm a working class guy. I didn't know very well at school. But I said, let's look at the other side of that. Because nobody's had a pay rise for three years and inflation's through the roof. So one of us has got to be wrong. And, mm. and he said, oh, well, I said, no. I said, what's doing? If you're in inflation at the minute, is this company still paying their shareholders millions of pounds 
in dividends and it's going out the country into their tax havens. Mm. That's why. Mm. I said, if you look at it from a reasonable point of view and say, look, if I spend £90 a week at Morrison's on my big shop, mm. and at the moment I can only go out and spend £40 a week at Morrison's on my big shop because I haven't had a pay rise, if you give me a reasonable pay rise, I still might not spend 90, but I might spend 80 mm. or 75. Mm. And if I'm spending 75 and that's going back into the system, then it will bring inflation down because people are spending money. Yeah. And he just didn't seem to be able to clinch that at all, you know. Well, he's, he's probably going for his own career and waiting to be given his own big fat check. Well, he, like he, the Upton Sinclair thing, isn't it? Of like, it's difficult for a man to understand something when he's paid depends on him not understanding it exactly that's exactly right and i, I had to laugh at all these all these facts that he were quoting me were all the right wing press cutted in that out and of course when he he sent me to have a look at and what he integrated into that was that he, we were talking like you and i were mm. uh oh you and i are but when he's put it together the facts that he's quoting is actually show that it's all come from the newspapers that he's mm. put put pictures of headlines in and things like this, you know, either. Uh, it, was, it, it was funny, like, but I just don't think he had a, an inkling about what he was talking about, mm. you know. Such is life. Yes. Well, okay, so that's all my questions done. Obviously, we could probably run longer. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it over to you if there's anything that you want to add, anything that you want to discuss that we've not touched on. Or if you want to, like, I don't know, maybe you want to sort of big up the hardship fund or talk about any forthcoming actions or say where people can join RMT or follow RMT or whatever you want to talk about. Um, well, I think the only thing I really got to say at this stage is has got to be to do with the current industrial action that, that the RMT are taking. Um, I've done many speeches over the last few months to uh, labor groups, to all sorts of groups. Mm. Um, I went last week to Halifax. Um, I was invited along there to speak on the 180th anniversary of the, the great strike in Halifax as the public. Well, that was, you know, 500,000 people on the street, mm. you know, in, in 1842. And I mean, that, that, that is phenomenal. Mm. And it was bigger than than the general strike, mm. but it, it it was set with the Chartist group, and I didn't know anything about it mm. until I did a bit of research because I had to go and speak to them. You know what I mean? And and it, what I said there was when I looked at it, nothing's changed. Mm. Nothing's changed. They were the colliers that were coming out at that stage, and they yeah. brought the mill owners out, and they put the army on on uh, on Halifax Bridge. And people were killed. And the point I made there was nothing's changed. Mm. You go forward a few years and you get, we all know what happened at Orgreave. Mm. You know, they, they herded people deliberately into a place where they could be attacked. Mm. And there was no doubt about the fact that. And the some of those lied people, the BBC lied for him. Yeah. And, and some of those people in police uniforms were armed forces personnel. That was proved. Mm. And, and you move forward to now and they're not, they're not as violent with it now. What they're doing now is they just change the laws. Mm. If they don't like what they're doing, they change the laws. All I would do is I would encourage the general public 
absolutely encourage the general public to find the facts out for themselves and not just listen to the right-wing press and the bullshit that they are feeding them. And, and, and it's, it's daily, and it's because the government are running the newspapers as well to a certain extent. The majority of the newspapers, there's very few. Shelf. And yet we are, we are buoyed by the support that the public are giving us. And it's because, as I've said in each of my speeches, and the public will be listening because they've all been outdoors when I've given these speeches. And I, I implore the public that's listening, we are not doing this just for the railways. We are doing this for every working class person that's got a job in this country. Because if they get away with it with us, they'll get away with it with everybody because it won't stop here. Everybody should fear their job. 800 P&O staff out the window. They admitted they broke the law, but now they're saying they can't prosecute it. But then they've set the precedent. <laughs> yeah. The precedent set then. It's like, well, they've yeah. done it and nothing happened. That's so exactly we can do it and nothing will happen to the us. Weasel words. To do the next thing. Yeah. The weasel words that the government came and told us it was a disgrace and they were going to stop this. And yet at the same time, voting against zero hours contract, voting against changing things. To stop them doing what they're doing. And that's what's going to happen here. They beat us. They're just going to come along and each of the big companies will look at this and they'll say, well, they got away with it. Mm. Why can't we? And that's what's happening on the railways. Don't believe that this is modernization. Mm. Tell me how modernization means closing 800 travel centers. Mm. Where does the old deal, the infirm, the disabled, mm. When you've got nobody on the stations, you've got a ticket machine. And where's the sells you the ticket? Where's the investment in the infrastructure, in the upgrading, in the maintenance, in the yeah. you know, like if it's modernisation, where's the money that comes with this modernisation, yeah. and why well, why does it mean everyone has to get fired? Well, the money will come out of what they're doing. The money will come out of the saving of thousands of thousands of jobs. Mm. Network Rail are going to get rid of two and a half thousand maintenance workers. Mm. They've still got the same amount of railway to maintain, but there will be two and a half thousand sure. And they're going to go back to something called risk-based maintenance. And risk-based maintenance is very self-expansive. They will look at what maintainers needs doing at a particular time. They will look at the risk factor on a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if that risk factor outweighs the cost mm. or it doesn't outweigh the cost, mm. then they'll risk it. They'll do it. The last time that happened, I'll tell you when the last time that would happen. Not as far. 2000, not 2000, mm. at Hatfield, mm. the Hatfield disaster, four people killed. Mm. My partner should have been on that train. She works on the trains as well. Should have been working on that train that day. She broke her foot the day before. And was very lucky there wasn't. And then you went on to say Potter's Bar, which I think was 2007 or around that time. Seven people killed. And the common denominator there, both of those faults had been identified previously. A broken rail at Hatfield. They knew about it, but they didn't think it was serious enough to have to repair. Accident. Potter's Bar. They've been out and inspected the sets of points and the set of points were not fixed properly. 
and the tie bars were not screwed up. The points split, derailed the trade. That was down to private contractors that were hired by Network Rail. And in Hatfield, it was Network Rail themselves just to me. That was risk-based maintenance, and that cost jobs. And that's what they're trying to do here. And it will cost money, and it will cost lives. No doubt about that whatsoever. I implore the public to get the facts properly. Speak to people at the picket lines. Understand why we're doing it. It's not for money. Yes, we want to pay rise. But first and foremost, we've said no enforced redundancies and no detrimental terms and conditions changes. And then, yes, by the way, we'd like a pay rise as well. That's what it's about. You know, the public, the travelling public need safe trades. They have threatened us already. If we don't accept what's on the table, they're going to take the guards off every train. There'll be no guards. We've already fought this battle once. You need a guard on the train. People don't understand. There's a train accident. The first person that's likely to get it is the driver. If he's dead or incapacitated, God forbid, and you've got no guard on the train, where do you go? Yeah. It's a common fact that the most deaths in railway incidents are caused by people getting off the train because they don't know the train's coming the other way, where they're coming from, what they're coming from. That's a fact. And to take the, the guard off the train is suicidal. It's as simple as that. But that's what they want because it saves money. Don't castigate people until they know those facts. Uh, and you can, you know, you can go on, you can read the facts. You can go to a picket line and speak to the guys. They will tell you honestly what it's there for. And remember, they lose a day's pay every time they go on strike. They never get that back, ever. And the, the largest number ever are coming out and voting for it because they know this is not just their future, it's everybody's future going forward. This government will decimate jobs in this country if they get away with this. Mm -hmm. Nurses, doctors, teachers, those people don't come out on strike. They don't do a job of work. They do a vocation. They don't work. They, that's vocational. It's a vocation for them. For those people to even consider coming out on strike has got to tell you that enough is enough. And that's what the public should be thinking about. Well, now, so many have been going to food banks for so long. Yes. You know, like the, the second, I mean, if a buddy, like if a hedge fund manager had to go to a food bank, the first thing that they would do before going to that food bank is kick off. <laughs> make yeah. a whole bunch of phone calls and be like screaming phone all their friends in the media like yeah and yet the the the, the people that are getting the blame by these people are, are the people that are on benefits they say mm. it's a common fact 45 percent of people that go to food banks are already employed mm. you know it, it's there yeah it, they didn't kill 130,000 billionaires, you know, like over the last 10 years, did they? No, so, exactly. You know, or so that, that's what I was saying to do. You know, 195,000 public school people in the last two, three years, you know. And if, if, if the people do talk to them, yes, we, we do have a hardship fund mm. and the details can be given on the picket line to anybody that wants to, to make a donation. Um, don't. We have a local one for Leeds, for our members in Leeds. Mm. Um, and I, all my members, all the, the picket line supervisor on the picket lines will have the bank details to that, mm. um, which can be put out and they can make a direct contribution from their own bank account into that. 
And it, it's not strike pay as people would have in you. We're not giving it out for people that have strike pay. It is absolutely an hardship fund for people that are struggling because of the strike and they are getting behind with things. And we have an independent panel that will sit down and look at things and make an award where we can. But 40,000 people on strike, you, you know, we're not, we're not rich. We're not a huge union. We've only got, you know, 85,000 members. Mm. Um, and money doesn't go that far. So it is strictly for hardship. But if anybody wants to ask, feel free. I mean, anybody can contact me at Leeds City branch of the RMT. Um, go on the RMT website to get any detail that the one from there. Anybody, I, I would employ everybody, implore everybody at the minute, if you're not in a union, please join one. I don't care what union it is, but join one. Mm. In fact, in a couple of weeks' time, a lot of the unions in Leeds are getting together and we are having a join the union, join a union day mm. in Leeds where we're out going out there, we, we're taking leaflets out, we're taking tables out and we're going to talk to people and, and just encourage them to join a union because without it, they're going to struggle. It's as simple as that. So thank you for letting me mention that. No worries. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. I'm going to wrap it up there, John, because we're, yep. we're overrunning. Um, yeah, thank you very much for your time. If you're listening to this, I assume you have some connection to Leeds, like living here or being from here. If you're such a person in Leeds or from Leeds and you haven't done your recording for working hours yet, then don't wait. Email me at workinghourspod at western-studios com and let's arrange some time to record your working hours interview if you want to be a guest on the show put guest in your subject line and add a short bio in your message along with some indication of your availability i will need a two-hour window for us to record in i can record in your work time or during your downtime i have been recording interviews for working hours for over a year on zoom but i can record offline as well how do you feel about work what do you like and not like about your work you can be on Working Hours anonymously or you can promote yourself, your company or your brand. Cleaner or owner, what is your experience? Have your voice heard for a change. Share your wisdom with people who want to hear it for a change. Give us the inside skinny on what's happening in your industry. Loiners, what are you doing in the world? What is Leeds doing most of the time? Be a part of local history. Be on working hours. This is your show, Leeds. It's all about what you are making and have made of yourself and of our city. Do you even know what you're doing? If you think you do, then come and tell me about it. Come on working hours, even if you don't know what you're doing. I certainly don't. Email me right now. Quick, get a pen. Workinghourspod at western-studios.com. If you're allowed to do that, that is... If you're not allowed to do that, then maybe sneakily tell me why. You can email this show securely and anonymously via westernstudios at protonmail.com and I could alter your voice on a recording and keep you anonymous. Come and tell me how awful and dodgy your employer is. If you and your business aren't ashamed of what you do, then let's hear all about it. What good are you doing the rest of us? Are you socially useful? Am I? Is this... Send your feedback, questions, comments and queries right now to workinghourspod at western-studios.com. Follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads. 
to find out when new episodes are being released or to DM me with any questions or comments. Or you can use the hashtag WorkingHoursPodLeads on either site to find me. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore leads. And I'm on LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash Simon hyphen Treen. Or you can go to my company page, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Yes, I have a company of one. To be fair to me, I am the best company that I have ever worked for. If you want to work with me to make a podcast or any digital audio content in Leeds, then get in touch. Whether it's for a cause, for publicity campaigns, product promotions, sales, or just for your own passion projects, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, now. If you're thinking of online audio content creation, then think Western Studios for support, advice, and guidance on getting it made. At Western Studios, you work with a real-life lawyer who is actually in Leeds, who you can actually work with on your digital audio content. Not a piece of software, not a course of articles or a series of live chats and video courses, but me, a person in physical place-based reality. So don't wade through vapid articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts by disembodied virtual people on the web. Get on with making your podcast now. Then, when it gets hard and expensive and it all goes wrong, which it will, then call Western Studios to make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios will take on your podcast's boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about your podcasting pain points and I can make it all better for you. I feel your pain. For a charge, I'll share it. Remember, podcast work is work. Leads businesses, leads campaigns, leads brands. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start? Hit me up at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. And then I charge £25 an hour after that. I can arrange hefty discounts for the right projects. So tell me your idea and your budget and I'll tell you what I can do for you. What do you have to lose? Time. That's what. Time is running out. Temperatures are rising. The sun's getting real low on humanity now. So make your thing and make it now because you and all your future ancestors who will now never be will be holding your peace for the rest of forever. The best time to make a podcast was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Writers in Yorkshire, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content that is about and for and has been made in Leeds. How do I know this? Because I am one of them. Help me make your old screenplays, unpublished novels, unperformed plays, stories, poems and performances. Whatever you got, baby. Make it as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. I want to make it into a podcast or audiobook. I get to practice making shows and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Save yourself the hassle and the headache of making your podcast by giving it to me instead. And finally, once again, please let this show, what you're listening to right now, Working Hours, get big and strong by joining its Patreon. Support Working Hours online. Be a champion on Patreon. 
don't ask the membership fee. It's a pound. For a pound a month, you can really inspire me and motivate me. Maybe one day you'll even cover my costs. Go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to sign up or go to Kofi, K-O hyphen F-I dot com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month. Be super awesome and join both. There's a monthly live stream on the Patreon and you can get access to the working hours discord with a Kofi membership. So do both. Go crazy. Spend on me like there's no tomorrow. Why not? Your planet is burning. Your house is on fire. Your governments are criminals. The oil industry are maniacs. And bankers are completely insane. We're losing everything. Act like it. Do something new and something different. Work for peace and plan with kindness. Remember to like, share, follow and subscribe to Working Hours. Tell your grand. Tell your housekeeper. Tell your gardener. Tell your parole officer. Tell your boss. Tell Leeds. And I'll see thee next time, our kid. Working Hours is presented, edited and recorded by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain, and was taken from museopen.org.